Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the great doctrines of the Christian faith as they are summarized for us in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Now last time we considered what the Bible teaches about the providence of God and today with God's help we want to consider what the Bible teaches about the fall of man. In that connection I invite you to turn with me to the story of the fall which is recorded in Genesis 3 the verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear friends, few things in life are more tragic than a plane crash. For one thing, a plane is very expensive. Most planes cost in the millions and even tens of millions of dollars. For another thing, a plane takes a long time to make, literally thousands of man hours. And most importantly, a plane, especially if it's a large plane, contains many people, sometimes several hundred people. And for that reason, when a plane crashes, it makes headlines all around the world, shocking many. Well, my sermon today is about another tragic crash not of an airplane, but of something far more valuable, man himself. Like an airplane, man was magnificent creation, creation of God. Not even the angels compared to him, since he and he alone was created in God's image. But one day, this beautiful creation of God rebelled against him. He crashed, much like a beautiful, sophisticated airplane crashes into the ground. We call this the fall of man. We have a summary of what the Bible teaches on the fall of man in Article 14 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. Now, Article 14 marks the beginning of a new section. We began our study of this confession with Article 1 on the existence and the attributes of God. And then in Articles 2 through 7, we contemplated how this God is made known to us, namely through general and special revelation. And then in Articles 11 through 8 through 11, rather, we considered more specifically the doctrine of God, looking at the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. 
In Articles 12 and 13, we considered God's work of creation as well as his work of providence. Well, today we begin our consideration of the doctrine of man, or sometimes called anthropology. And that continues until Article 17. We begin this section with his fall into sin. And so the theme for the sermon today is the fall of man. And we'll consider, first of all, the tragic nature of the fall, and secondly, the terrible consequences of the fall. The fall of man was the greatest tragedy in history. And that will become clear when we consider what man fell from. What was man like before his fall into sin? Well, our confession answers that question as follows. First of all, it says, and I quote, God created man out of the dust of the earth. Now, that's exactly what the scriptures teach. In Genesis 2, verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So man did not descend from apes and other more primitive creatures by means of a long evolutionary process. No, he was created by God in an instant from the dust of the earth. And he was created both body and soul. God created the body of man from the dust of the earth, and he created the soul of man and infused it into him directly. Secondly, we confess here that man was made and formed after God's image and likeness. Now, these words, image and likeness, are taken from Genesis 1, verse 26. And there God is quoted as saying, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, there's been a lot of debate throughout the centuries concerning the meaning of these two words. Suffice it to say that these two words mean essentially the same thing. We know that because in various places in Scripture, these words are used interchangeably. The word likeness simply adds emphasis to the word image. And so taken together, these two words simply mean that man was created in the very image of God. Now, what exactly does that mean? What do we mean when we say that man was created in the very image of God? Well, Reformed theology distinguishes between the image of God in the narrow sense and in the broader sense. And when we say that man was created in the image of God in the broader sense, we mean several things. We mean that he was created with a soul or a spirit. We also mean that he was created with the ability to reason. He was created moral, with an innate understanding of right and wrong. He was created to be immortal, that is to live forever. And finally, we mean he was created to have dominion over the earth. Now when we say that man was created in the image of God in the narrow sense, we mean he was created with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now that's based on two passages of Holy Scripture, Colossians 3 verse 10, where Paul writes that the Colossians have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And also Ephesians 4, verse 24, where the same apostle exhorts the Ephesians to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Theologians understand these words righteousness and holiness and knowledge to to refer to man's state before his fall into sin. 
Secondly, we confess here that God created man good. And the word good here means that man was created without sin, without a corrupt nature, without even a desire to sin. Thirdly, he was created righteous. And by that we mean his thoughts and his words and his actions were all in perfect conformity to the law of God. Man did what God wanted him to do, and he was happy to do it. Fourthly, he created God, created man rather, holy. The word holy here means sanctified or set apart. Man was completely devoted to God and to the service and the glory of God. And finally, we confess here that he was made capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. That means man's will was perfectly in harmony with God's will. God's will was man's will. Man's will was God's will. There was no contradiction between the two. So that's what we mean when we, when we speak about man before the fall. This is what he was like. There was not a trace of sin in him. There was no imperfection in him whatsoever. He was perfect in every respect. But then something terrible happened. Man fell from this glorious estate. We read of that in Genesis chapter 3, which we read earlier. One day the devil, appearing in the form of a serpent, came to Adam and Eve and asked them if God had indeed said that they should not eat of every tree of the garden. And Eve replied that they could eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which was in the midst of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Then we read that the serpent flatly denied this. And he said to Eve, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And we read that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And by this simple act of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve plunged themselves and all of their posterity into abject misery and poverty. Now, how did that happen? (coughs) Well, there have been some who have sought to blame God for this. And they point out, rightly, that since the fall into sin was decreed by God, therefore, ultimately, God is responsible for the fall. Man had no choice but to fall into sin, they say. He was like a robot, simply carrying out what God had programmed him to do. But friends, that's not how God created man. God created man, as we've seen, good and in his image. And what is more, he created him as a free moral agent, free to choose to sin and free to choose not to sin. Well, others have argued that in order for man to fall... God must have created him with a slight imperfection. So man was like a defective automobile that rolls off the assembly line and then has to be recalled. But that contradicts the teaching of Scripture which says that God made man, after God made man, he said that everything he had made, including man, was very good. Besides, this too would make God the author of sin. But the Scriptures teach that God is not the author of sin. No, rather than blame God, our confession lays the blame precisely where it belongs, with man himself. And again, I quote from our confession. 
It says here that being in honor, he understood it not, meaning he did not appreciate it, neither knew, or we could say, neither did he value his excellency, but willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse, giving ear to the words of the devil. So our confession here mentions three factors that led to the fall of man into sin. The first was this, that although man was endowed with great honor, he did not understand it. He did not appreciate it or value it. Man had the best of everything. He had a beautiful home, the Garden of Eden. He had a privileged position. He was given dominion over the entire creation. He had direct personal contact with God. He walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But man did not value these things. Instead, he threw them all away. He thought, wrongly of course, that life without God was better than life with God. Secondly, we confess here that man willfully subjected himself to sin. So here our confession reminds us that originally man was created with a perfectly free will. And he could use his free will to sin or not to sin, but he chose to sin. God did not coerce man into sinning against him. Man did this of his own accord, of his own free will. Thirdly, we confess here that man listened to the words of the devil. Now that's not to say that the devil is responsible for the fall. He isn't. We can no more blame the devil for the fall of man into sin than we can blame God. Nevertheless, the devil was the instigator, which is why he was cursed above all the animals. The point is, the responsibility for the fall into sin lies not with God, but solely and completely with man. Yes, it is true, God decreed the fall, but he is in no way responsible for it. That responsibility rests on man and man alone. And since Adam was our representative when he fell, we all fell in him. And that means we must also bear the consequences. Well, what are these consequences? That brings us to our second point. Our confession mentions several consequences of the fall of man into sin. The first is this. Man separated himself from God who is his true life. Separation from God is arguably the most tragic consequence of the fall. As we've seen, before the fall, man enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with God. God came down from heaven and he walked and talked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. They were like good friends. But the fall changed that. As soon as man heard the voice of God in the garden, we read that Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The simple act of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil resulted in separation between God and man. This cut him off from God, who is his life, especially his source of spiritual life. What is more, this separation was permanent. Man can do nothing to bridge the gap that he created between himself and God. And when he dies, he must be separated from God forever, as he must spend an everlasting eternity in hell. The second consequence of the fall was the corruption of man's nature. We've seen that God created man good. That means he created him with a good nature. Man, before the fall, loved God with his whole heart, with his mind, with his soul, and with his strength, his will, his desires, his affections. They were all in complete harmony with God's will and desires and affections. 
But with the fall, all of the goodness of man's nature was instantly transformed into corruption. And no part of his nature was left untouched. Theologians commonly refer to this as total depravity. That does not mean that man became as wicked as he possibly could be. But it does mean that every aspect of man's nature, his mind, his will, his affections, his desires, all became tainted by sin. The third consequence of the fall is that man made himself liable to corporal and spiritual death. Before the fall, there was no death. And before the fall, God warned man that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. But man did not listen to God. He partook of that tree, and now he must die, not just physically, but also spiritually. The fourth consequence of the fall is that man lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God. Now, what gifts is our confession referring to here? Well, it's referring to those gifts that distinguish man as the image-bearer of God in the narrow sense, such as his perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. These, these man lost as a result of the fall into sin. However, even after the fall, man does retain some remnants of the image of God in the broader sense. Even the most ungodly men have the ability to reason, they also know that there is a God, and they have the ability to discern, at least to some extent, the difference between right and wrong. They can even do some good in the world. And as such, as our confession also says, they leave all men without excuse. But because of the fall, they are far from being able to use these gifts in the right way. Our confession says that for all the light which is in us is changed as a result of the fall, into darkness, as the scriptures teach us, saying the light shines in darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. Well, there's one more consequence of the fall mentioned here, and it's the loss of man's free will. Article 14 ends with the following statement. Therefore, we reject all that is taught repugnant to this concerning the free will of man. Since man is but a slave to sin and has nothing of himself unless it is given him from heaven. So here we confess that while man had a free will before the fall, he lost it after the fall. Now, instead of being able to choose not to sin, man is a slave to sin. He's not even able to choose to be saved. His will is in bondage to sin. When making that statement, our confession is militating against one of the foundational teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church taught, back when our confession was written and still teaches, that man has a free will. Man in his unregenerate state is able to choose to be saved or not to be saved. And Arminians teach exactly the same thing. Well, over and against this teaching, our confession, in line with Scripture, says no. Man cannot contribute anything towards his salvation, much less choose to be saved. Why not? Because by nature he is dead in trespasses and sins. And as long as he remains in that condition, he cannot and will not choose to be saved. To substantiate that claim, our confession cites several passages of Scripture. 
The first is John 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So here we see that in and of himself, man will not and cannot come to Christ. He can only come if the Father draws him. Another verse of Scripture that's quoted here is Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. There Paul writes, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. As long as we are in the flesh, in other words, as long as we are in our unregenerate, unconverted state, we cannot please God. We can do nothing to please Him. We cannot even believe on Him. Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. There he writes, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man, man in his unregenerate, unconverted state, cannot and will not receive the things of God. Not only will he not receive them, but he regards them as utterly foolish. And so man is left utterly dependent on the grace of God in order to be saved. Now, does that mean that all man can do is sit back and wait for God to save him? Is our confession here advocating some kind of morbid passivity? Not at all. While man will never be able to choose for God, he is still responsible. He must believe. He must repent. If he doesn't, he will perish. Is there a tension here? Yes, from our perspective there is, but not from God's. From God's perspective, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are entirely consistent with each other. They're like the rails in a railway track. From close up, they're separate, but when we look far into the distance, they come together. The point is, man is utterly dependent on God for his salvation. And yet, he is still fully responsible. And therefore, he must respond in faith to the call of the gospel. If he doesn't respond, he will perish, and it will be entirely his own fault. But that's not all. Not only is man utterly dependent on God for coming to faith, he is also utterly dependent on God for continuing in faith and producing good works to his glory. Our confession brings that out by quoting three more passages of Scripture. The first is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. There the apostle writes, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And in Philippians 2, verse 13, the same apostle says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And in John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So man, even, un, even regenerate man, is completely and utterly dependent on God for everything and for every aspect of his salvation. Well, these then are the consequences of the fall of man into sin. Separation from God, a corrupt nature, corporal and spiritual death, loss of gifts, and bondage of his will. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? And it may raise the question in our minds, is there any hope for man? Yes, dear friends, there is hope. 
there is hope in Christ. Although man by nature is lost in sin and totally unable to do any saving good, God did not leave us in that condition. Rather, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And he suffered and he died on the cross so that believing on him, sinners like you and me could be saved. Now we hope to reflect more on that in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But suffice it to say that in Christ, the effects of the fall can and will be reversed. Through faith in him, we can be made new creatures. And the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness that we lost as a result of the fall can be completely restored. Oh yes, it is true. It will never be restored perfectly, at least not in this life. But it will in the life to come. And then we will be perfect, even as he is perfect. And we will stand in his presence and praise his name to all eternity. Oh, my friend, will you be there? Today again, the Lord Jesus Christ invites you, urges you to come to him. Apart from him, there is only death and condemnation. But in him, there is life and blessing, both now and to all eternity. Oh, seek the Lord then. While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Dear friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, We'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. And Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. That's banneroftruth.org at frcna.org. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website, at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go to our webpage, and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together 
to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.